0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Today we want to share with you one of the most unforgettable cases in the United Kingdom. For parents, one of our biggest fears is someone taking our child. We take them out and keep them in our sight at arm's reach. What happens when you turn your back for a second and fail to see a dangerous situation? What happens when you assume kids aren't the threat you need to watch out for? Get ready to hear about Liverpool's youngest convicted criminals. James Patrick Bulger, a.k.a. Jamie, was born on March 16th in 1990. He lived with his mother, Denise, in Liverpool, England. He was just shy of turning three and was the typical two-year-old, being social, funny, and happy. On February 12th in 1993, Denise and her friend and Jamie went to an indoor shopping center called New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle and spent the day shopping. Around 3.40 p.m., Denise and Jamie headed to the butchers, and when they got there, Denise let go of Jamie's hand for less than one minute to pay the cashier. What happened after that is every parent's biggest fear. As soon as Denise looked down to grab her two year old's hand again, he was gone and panic set in immediately for Denise. She did what most parents automatically do. She started frantically looking for her son everywhere, inside the shop and outside the shop. It wasn't uncommon for children to wander off at the shopping center, but they decided to put a call out to everyone to be on the lookout for Jamie, and if you had seen anything, to report that information. That
1: is terrifying. As a mother of a toddler myself, this is absolutely my worst nightmare. Toddlers are so fast, and if you take your eyes off them for even a minute, they can get into all sorts of trouble.
0: And toddlers can be so social and friendly. When my daughter was two, she wanted to say hi to everyone who looked her way, because at the age of two, they don't know that anyone is capable of being malicious. Absolutely.
1: Did anyone see anything that could help find little
0: Jamie? Unfortunately, even with the shopping center's plea to action, the alert brought nothing. No witnesses came forward. No one had spotted Jamie or had seen anything out of the ordinary. After some more manual searching from staff members and Denise with no luck, they decided to contact the Liverpool police. Detective Phil Roberts was the first on the scene and noticed that the shopping center was near a busy road in a very large industrial area. The more time that went by, the further and further out from the shopping center Jamie could have been. So within hours, police expanded their search to the inside and the outside of the building. They began searching scrapyards, empty buildings, and everywhere on the streets. During the search, Denise was taken to the police station for further questioning regarding Jamie's whereabouts and stayed there with her family overnight. By nighttime, it was clear that something was terribly wrong. And after 24 hours the next morning, this case would be known as an abduction. The police went back to the shopping center and were able to locate some CCTV cameras. When they reviewed the footage, starting from the time Jamie let go of his mother's hand, they saw two-year-old Jamie leaving the shopping center with two young boys. What?
1: Why would two young boys take a baby away from the shopping center? If they found him wandering, you would think they would take him to a security guard or something.
0: Yeah, it's very weird. And to people at the mall, it probably looked like two older brothers just watching their younger sibling. What did they even know about the kids he was with? While the police estimated both boys were about 14 or 15 years old, however, the footage was very unclear and poor quality, so they couldn't really get any descriptive features of either of the boys. Denise was able to identify Jamie based off his outfit that he wore that day. This footage brought a little bit of comfort to Denise and her family, knowing that he went off with two young boys instead of a dangerous adult. They thought their intentions couldn't have been malicious and that there's a good chance of getting Jamie back. Maybe they were playing some kind of game with little Jamie. What could two young boys possibly be up to?
1: Right. When we teach our kids about stranger danger, we tend to focus on adult predators because we don't usually expect other kids to
0: be a threat. Yeah, I had never been warned about other children as a child. I think the first time I heard of anything like that is in the sex trafficking industry where they use kids that have unfortunately been in that position for a while to draw in new ones.
1: That's true, but I didn't even hear about anything like that until I was an adult.
0: Parenthood is scary, man. What can they even do? Soon after, Denise did the only thing she could do. She went to the media in desperate need of the public's help to bring her son home. On one news station, Denise stated, If you have my baby, please just bring him back. Despite all of her efforts and the police having the CCTV images, nothing came of any of it. The investigator's next step was to find these two boys, and in order to do that, they had to look into young men between the ages of 10 and 18 years old, but focused a little bit more on the boys that were at the age of 14. Detective Phil Roberts reached out to the local police to see if they had any files of young men that may have fit the description of the boys from the footage or may have been known as troublemakers in the community. They went as far as interviewing police officers individually and asking them who they think the boys could be. It turned out a lot of boys were causing trouble in that area. Two days after Jamie's abduction, Denise received the call she was hoping would never come. The body of Jamie was found by children playing on the railway line about two and a half miles outside of Liverpool.
1: No, that is the worst news that you can give a parent. He was found miles away. I've taken my toddler on hikes, and that is a long way for a baby of that age to walk.
0: Every time you see a child under three, there's always a stroller nearby because those little legs will give out. I literally can't imagine getting that call. For me, it's just an impossible scenario, but I'm sure for Denise, she felt the exact same way.
1: I'm sure. What were they able to learn about Jamie's death?
0: When Jamie's body was discovered, He had over 42 injuries, which included a fractured skull. Upon examination, Dr. Alan Williams counted 22 bruises, splits and grazes on Jamie's face and head, and more than 20 wounds on his body. Jamie was stripped from his waist down at some point, and his private area had been mutilated. Post-mortem revealed that Jamie had been struck by at least 30 blows and survived for a while shortly after the attack but died before the train severed his body.
1: Oh my god, that's horrible.
0: Who would do such horrific things to an innocent little baby? What they did was one of the most effed up things. Toddlers can't defend themselves, and to brutally beat and torture him was pure evil. Absolutely, these are monsters. This case quickly turned from an abduction to a full-on manhunt for these two boys, who were most likely the murderers. This shook the community and everyone was willing to help in any way they could. This included magazine editors who offered to use their technology to clear up the CCTV images that the police had provided. Just to make sure everyone was understanding the seriousness of the crime, the police officers made a decision to release information regarding little Jamie's last steps. He had to have walked almost three miles to the railway line and had to have climbed up a small bridge near the police station to get there. Over the next few days, police began questioning boys that somewhat fit the description. The information of who was being interviewed by the police was leaked to the media, and the boys being questioned were harshly judged by the community. This actually caused a few innocent young men to have to flee the city with their families due to all the death threats they had received.
1: I get the outrage. I really do. But people need to wait before casting judgment until they have all the facts. Threatening innocent people just because police talk to them is never okay.
0: Can you imagine your entire family's name being tarnished because your kid was in the same age bracket as one of the boys that killed this baby? Right.
1: Please tell me someone came forward with something. Anything.
0: A few days into the homicide investigation, a woman called the police station stating that she had just been made aware of the CCTV footage and she recognized one of the boys. According to this woman, the boy she was referring to actually skipped school that day with one of his friends. Seeing that there were two boys seen with Jamie, this aligned perfectly with the evidence provided, including the fact that his abduction took place during school hours. The police finally had what they had been looking for since day one, two solid leads. Detective Phil Roberts sent his team to the homes of the two boys for questioning. At first, it was hard for the police to believe it could have been these two due to them only being 10 years old. During the entire investigation, they believed that the boys had at least been 14 years old. So for the time being, the investigators wanted to interview the boys just to eliminate them from the suspect list so they can focus on the real murders. 10 years
1: old is so young for a crime this vicious. At least the police didn't brush it off and did follow up on the lead, though. They better have at least followed up.
0: (laughs) What did those boys have to say? The first boy they made contact with that day was the one that the woman had recognized from the footage, Jonathan Venables. At the same time, a second team of officers were sent to question the other suspect, Robert Thompson. When the investigator questioned Robert, he said, I'm here to speak to you regarding the murder of Jamie Bulger. To which Robert replied, yeah, I know. The detective then said, We were told you may be a part of it. After that, panic started to set in for Robert, and that's when the investigator told Robert that he was taking him in for further questioning. This caused Robert to start crying, but it was clear to police that these were not real tears at all. It was all an act. Both boys were put in two different police stations for questioning that day. Once at the police station, Robert was questioned and he blamed everything on John. He said it was John's idea to go to the shopping center that day, and he was the one that grabbed Jamie and took him. He broke into tears that didn't seem genuine and said that he wasn't the one to blame. He begged John to take Jamie back and let him go, but he refused. This was the only information Robert was willing to tell police, and it took hours of interrogation. Police even piled it on, telling him that he was seen on the railway by a witness in order for him to admit that he had been there. However, Robert was adamant that this was still all John's fault.
1: Okay. So it sounds like they did actually find the right boys this time. I can already tell getting the story out of these boys is going to be messy.
0: Especially if they both point fingers at each other. What did the other boy have to say? Meanwhile, during John's interview, he stated that he wasn't at the shopping center at all that day. Better yet, he wasn't even in Liverpool. He was miles away at the time. On day two of interrogation with his mother in the room, the police officers told John that Robert had already told them that they were both there. That caught John off guard and caused him to have an emotional breakdown. He then admitted that he was at the shopping center and the railway that day, but insisted that he didn't take the kid. All both boys had to say during most of their interview is we never took the boy, and that's the god-honest truth, while putting on an emotional act.
1: It's like they're almost confessing but not completely. They're little kids. It's still hard to
0: believe that they could have done this. I mean one thing is clear. These are the two that the police have been looking for. It's just a matter of getting them to admit what everyone already knows. How did
1: they get it out of them?
0: Well investigators took a second look at what both boys were wearing that day on the CCTV footage and in that footage they noticed that John was wearing a mustard colored coat. The following morning, the investigator asked John what color his coat was, and his reply was, mustard. At that moment, they knew that they had something, but they still needed a full confession, so the questioning continued. After two days of questioning, John gave them what they needed all along. He told them exactly what happened that day. John turned and told the officers that he killed a baby and he was sorry, and to tell the baby's mother he was sorry, too. He mentioned being present the entire time and even admitted to causing harm to the small child. Robert said they took Jamie and walked around for a bit until they eventually decided to make their way towards the railway. Robert witnessed John assault Jamie but didn't participate, didn't see him die, and simply went home after the attack. John, however, told investigators that Robert was responsible and he even witnessed him throwing rocks at Jamie until he fell over. And every time Jamie would get back up, They would throw another rock at him. Other than the story they told, there was blood found on both the boys' shoes, and imprints on Jamie's face matched the pattern of the bottom of their shoes. When the DNA came back as a match to Jamie, the evidence spoke for itself. Oh
1: my god. Forget their stories. Physical evidence doesn't lie. They both clearly attacked little Jamie together. This case sounds like a done deal to me. Me too. Through the investigation, what story did they come up with?
0: The puzzle the investigators pieced together went like this. The boys premeditated a plan that day, and it had nothing to do with Jamie or the railway. They had a plan to kidnap a boy and throw him in front of a car. Earlier that day, they attempted to take another little boy, but they were instantly caught by the boy's mother. The boys then headed to the shopping center and took Jamie's hand and led him out. They then walked for three miles with a distraught, tired, and scared two-year-old crying and screaming for his mother while the boys assaulted him the entire time. The boys' plan for Jamie was to take him to a canal and drown him by throwing him in. However, when one of the boys went to pick up Jamie, they accidentally dropped him on his head, causing him to bleed. There were over 38 witnesses that watched this happen and did nothing to intervene and save Jamie. It turns out a few witnesses asked the boy why Jamie was bloody and screaming, and the boys had a story prepared. They told witnesses that they were taking the boy home to his mother and that he had fallen over a few times, and that's where his injuries came from. Since drowning Jamie didn't work out, the boys headed towards the railway line. Once they made it there, the torture began. This included pouring paint into his eyes, stoning and clubbing him with bricks, sexually assaulting him, and leaving a badly beaten two-year-old on the railway line to be hit by a train.
1: Thirty-eight witnesses, and no one stepped in to help? This blows my mind. The baby was bleeding, and no adults felt it was necessary to take over the situation. Those boys were clearly out looking for a toddler to steal and torture.
0: The first one didn't work out, but they were determined. What kind of children could do something like that? Most kids shock themselves just by pushing a friend over a toy. This was extreme behavior. Great question. Let me give you a little background on these
1: boys. Robert Thompson was raised in a home with six siblings and an abusive father. His father was known to beat his mother on a regular basis and would eventually boldly taunt his wife with the affair he was having with a woman he had met on a family vacation. He even went as far as telling her that if she didn't like what he was doing, she could just leave him and take the kids with her. He was an estranged father and spent most of his time drinking at the local pubs or sleeping with the woman he was having an affair with. One day, he made the decision to run off with the woman and left behind five pounds to his wife and kids, which is the equivalent of $6.50 in American dollars.
0: So just leave and take all six of those kids? (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're trash. What's five pounds going to get anyone, a soda? What a jackass. (laughs) Leaving a few bucks behind is just adding insult to injury. Did he ever come back around?
1: The last time the children would ever see their father would be at their grandmother's funeral. With seven children to care for on her own and the emotional and physical abuse Robert's mother endured... She turned to alcoholism, leaving all of her children to raise and take care of themselves. Seven weeks after their father had abandoned them, the Thomas family went out for the day, and upon returning home, they found their home burnt down, leaving them to live in a hostel for two months. After that, they were rehoused in a much smaller home, but with seven young boys, it had become too much. Robert's mother's alcoholism got so bad, she always had a bottle in her hand, drinking from the time she woke up until she passed out at night. Due to the lack of affection and attention these kids received, they all started going down a darker path. They all started to act up and had social workers in and out of their home frequently. They were also known to skip school, and this wasn't always because they wanted to. The boys became mean towards each other, and the older brothers would often bully the younger brothers. The abuse inflicted on the younger brothers by the older brothers often included tying them up, locking them in the pigeon shed, and threatening each other with knives. They would even go as far as threatening to beat them up if they did go to school. When the brothers skipped school, most of them would go out and shoplift for essential things they needed, and on occasion a few toys they could play with. Altogether, in just one year, Robert had missed 49 days of school out of 140. Due to falling so far behind in all his classes and missing his work, Robert was held back a year. A pigeon shed?
0: I have never heard of one of those in the States.
1: (laughs) Right? (laughs) What would you need a shed full of pigeons for? Must be a British thing. (laughs) Anyways...
0: Robert and his brothers definitely sound like they were victims of their own environment. I
1: agree. Those kids were dealt a bad hand early in life and were set up for failure. So what about John? John Venables lived with two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister, who both had learning disabilities. Being around his brother and his sister so much, he picked up some of their behaviors, but it was never actually diagnosed with anything. John's father was known to be very traditional, and believed in strict rules of the household. As the man of the house, it was his job to work and provide a roof over his family's head. And his wife, Susan, should be a stay-at-home mother taking care of the household needs. Due to his siblings' disabilities, his mother would often have to focus most of her attention on them, leaving John's needs unfulfilled. When his grandfather on his mother's side passed away, it forced his mother to take all three children and move in to care for her mother, while his father found a place of his own. There was nothing I could find regarding the separation of the two, and they claimed to have still been married and very much together. When John moved to his grandmother's home, he began to be bullied by the neighborhood kids. They would throw things at him, hit him, and make fun of him and his siblings for having disabilities. All of this contributed to John's antisocial behavior, causing him to act out in school by mumbling things to himself in the middle of class and throwing things off his desk, as well as banging his head on the desk until he was in
0: pain. Well, if you treat someone like shit, especially a child, the things you say may sit with them, and they'll start to believe that your perspective of them is fact. Kids can be some real assholes, dude. Sometimes the things my kid tells me about these bullies at school and what they're saying leaves me shook. Kids are
1: so mean. My daughter isn't school-aged yet, but I seriously worry
0: about bullies. Did anything ever change? I mean, someone has to do something. He's banging his head on his desk.
1: Not really. He was resentful of his mother and constantly expressed that he wanted to be at the same school as his siblings. This led others to believe that the behavior John was showing was an imitation of his siblings' learning disabilities. Most felt he was trying to act as if he was suffering in the same way to trick the adults in his life in order to get into the same school as his siblings. John hoped that the bullying would stop if he was there. There was one incident in school where John tried strangling another classmate with a ruler, which resulted in him getting suspended. Although the school only suspended him for two days, his mother kept him home for ten weeks as further punishment, causing him to fall behind on all of his schoolwork. He was then sent to another school and held back a year. At this school, he made a friend in his class named Robert Thompson. They bonded over being the same age, a grade behind. Both had mothers with drinking problems, and both boys had attempted suicide. Neither had reliable father figures, and both were bullied relentlessly. This combination of tragic life events made for an instant friendship. Robert's skipping school and stealing soon became something the new friends did together.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, that's what we call a trauma bond, also known as a relationship based off of shared trauma, and it's usually a recipe for disaster. It's
1: good to have friends that you can relate to, but that is a powder keg waiting to go off.
0: Uh, yeah, there was so much going on with these boys behind what they were showing everyone else.
1: I'll tell you about the trial for what these boys did after a short break. Being one of the United Kingdom's biggest and most brutal cases, what John and Robert did angered a lot of people, and they started showing up by the thousands to express their hatred. The boys were set to be sentenced later that year, and over 500 people would attend to watch them be held accountable for the sadistic crime they committed against an innocent two-year-old who had no chance at defending himself. The boys were put on raised floors to accommodate them being so tiny at their trial. During the trial, the public was made aware of the details of that day, and it went something like this. On February 12th, John was on his way to school to pick up the classroom gerbils because it was his turn to take care of them. That's when he bumped into his best friend, Robert, Who convinced him to go shoplifting with him instead they shoplifted until they got bored then robert suggested they kidnap a kid and john agreed after the failed attempt to abduct the first child they detoured to the shopping center and successfully took jamie they walked him around for hours with witnesses asking them what they were doing they told one witness the little boy was lost and they were looking for his mother She gave them directions to the nearest police station and left. It became clear Robert was the leader of the two boys, and John was easily persuaded by him. It was said that Jamie would let John pick him up, hold his hand, and trusted him more than Robert. John also admitted that it was his idea to take him to the railway tracks.
0: Hold on. Instead of this grown ass woman taking the two year old who she knows doesn't belong to these two boys to the police station herself, she gave them directions to the police station. Right. Oh, you found a lost baby? Head that direction, kids. Okay, bye. (laughs) What the
1: hell? People need to step up and stop being afraid of getting involved. There are more important things than your own schedule.
0: I don't care where that witness was on her way to. If it was work, I'm positive that saving a two-year-old's life is a sufficient excuse. Right? (laughs) Like, what? The trial would
1: go on for 17 days before the boys, now 11 years old, were finally found guilty for the murder of Jamie Bulger. Because they were children, their identities were protected. But after the trial, the judge decided to release the boys' names and school pictures. The judge also added that while the boys were in prison, the public is not to be given any information about them. And upon release, they would be given new identities. Robert Thompson and John Venables were sentenced to eight years in prison. This light sentence caused so much outrage in the community that their trial was actually reviewed again, and their sentences were increased by two years. Both boys will be 21 years old when they're released from prison.
0: I don't think eight years is enough either. They clearly need a lot of rehabilitation before anyone can trust them. I do, however, agree that children offenders under 10 should be given new identities as adults, if they don't re-offend.
1: The UK clearly has more lenient sentences than the US for sure. (laughs) I agree that children offenders deserve a fresh chance, but they need to be closely evaluated to determine if they have truly been rehabilitated. So did anyone oppose this? Oh, yeah. That wasn't enough for the community, and most people agreed that if these boys were released back into society, the chances of them reoffending was very high. A national newspaper called The Sun actually started a petition to get these boys a longer sentence with over 200,000 signatures, and it worked. The judge increased their sentence from 10 years to 15 years. Okay, that sounds more like it. However... Since this was eventually deemed as unfair, their sentencing was brought back down to 10 years. Both boys were put in juvenile prison and rehabilitation centers. Their attorneys believed that if they were part of a rehabilitation program, it's likely they could be successfully released back into society one day. During their time in prison, both boys suffered from PTSD. They were heavily supervised for their protection from the other children. They had TVs, movies, and video games in their rooms, better food than the other inmates, and a good education. They were also taught how to conceal their identities and information regarding their past by professionals. Some felt they were given the luxury treatment for murdering an innocent toddler.
0: I'm sorry, but are they in prison or at a top-tier university with the best dorm on campus? (laughs) Like, are we still talking about the boys who sadistically took Jamie's life?
1: Yeah. Their lives seemed to have dramatically improved after their arrest. They went from poor kids with neglectful parents to the lap of luxury, all as a punishment for brutally torturing and murdering a little boy.
0: They had it better than most low-income children in America, who are doing nothing but simply being kids.
1: Pretty much. So in 1999, when both boys were 16 years old, their case was once again reviewed, and it was decided they would be released two years later at the age of 18. They were given new names, birth certificates, and new locations to live. They were prohibited from contacting each other, Jamie's family, and ever visiting Liverpool. All they were required to do is report to a parole officer. They were free men with the rest of their lives ahead of them. Wow, must be nice. I know. This really bothers me. Jamie's family must have felt betrayed by the legal system.
0: So, did either of them reoffend? Because if they didn't, America needs to take some tips on rehabilitation programs over congested prisons.
1: <laughs> In 2010, nine years after his release, John was charged with possession and distribution of child pornography it was discovered that he had been committing this crime the entire time since his release. It was made public that he had also been arrested at one point for fighting while intoxicated and for possession of drugs. He had developed a habit of dating underage girls during his time outside of prison as well. Even though he was a danger to society, his new identity was never released to the public. In February of 2018, John pled guilty to possession of over 1,000 indecent images of children. He was sentenced to three years in prison. Robert Thompson seems to be successfully rehabilitated and is still a free man while John is back in prison. As of September 29, 2020, John was denied parole and was told he will remain in prison for at least another two years before he can apply for parole again.
0: Well, with over 1,000 images of children he kept in his possession, prison can keep him. (laughs) Only three years, though, he'll be out again in no time.
1: These boys just keep getting lucky no matter what they do.
0: Robert and John were some of the luckiest kids and privileged adults for one of the most sadistic crimes known in the UK. They may have been able to not only manipulate each other, but the entire system their entire life. We don't know why they decided to pick Jamie that day, while he was just out shopping with his mommy. He had no idea he wouldn't live to see his third birthday, which was right around the corner. Mental health is important, and knowing someone's background and the home they came from will tell you a lot about what they think is okay and what isn't. Be aware of who you bring into your circle, and when you're out with your child, remember Jamie and stay vigilant of your surroundings. The National Center for Missing
1: and Exploited Children, NCMEC, offers a variety of resources. As the nation's clearinghouse and comprehensive reporting center for all issues related to the prevention of and recovery from child victimization, NCMEC leads the fight against abduction, abuse, and exploitation, because every child deserves a safe childhood. For more information, go to www.missingkids.com or call 800-THE-LOST. That's 800-843-5678.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stephen Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week.
1: Sham, what is our Conjure tip
0: of the week? Today, I want to talk about Moonstone. This stone is really good for children who are dealing with emotional issues or are hyperactive. This stone is known to cultivate compassion and empathy. It will also help with balance, emotions, and stress. You can utilize this crystal by having your child simply hold the crystal or rub it to their forehead. It's said that they will instinctively use the crystal where they need it.
1: That's great, Sham. Thanks. I know Moonstone as a crystal for new beginnings and as an aid to childbirth, but it has so many other helpful uses as well. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode.
0: Until Until next time, time, stay vigilant, conjurers. Conjurers!